So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, and they, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from, from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, 
But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So reads the Word of God. Some three or four, maybe five years before this scene, Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church. And as part of the introduction to that letter, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. When we hear that, there's absolutely no part of it that we disagree with, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, Jews and Gentiles alike. There's no part of that that we disagree with except the part that that recoils from bearing witness to the gospel ourselves. We feel it there. We feel disagreement at that point. There's no part of his statement that we disagree with except the part that causes us to do that, whatever it is, to recoil from bearing open witness to the gospel or the thing that causes us to freeze up on the spur of the moment when the gospel is mentioned unexpectedly. The part of us that instinctively lowers our voice to a whisper when we say words like Jesus or Savior or cross or resurrection or gospel. There's no part of this statement that we disagree with. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Except whatever part causes us to do that. Are you with me? I don't say that to heap guilt on our shoulders, though. Rather, I say it as an introduction to freedom. I actually think that not being ashamed of the gospel, not feeling that unease, not feeling that strangeness, not feeling that embarrassment, that is actually freedom. It's the guilt and the unease and the embarrassment itself that feels like a burden. We've gotten our categories mixed up. And we want to talk a bit this morning about the freedom that Paul exhibited here to proclaim the gospel in the setting where he was entirely unashamed of it in a Roman courtroom. Paul shows us then just what this freedom looks like. The freedom that he described in his letter to the Romans. 
He shows us what it looks like here in his fifth and final and longest defense in this final panel of the book of Acts. And this, then, is our aim today, unmistakably. We want to be able to leave this place saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know that we came in saying, I am ashamed of the gospel. But I think all of us know that feeling. And in our day and age, when there is such vitriolic opposition to it from so many different angles, it's perceived as such a divisive message, exclusive, bigoted, so many different insults hurled at it. The church can reel under that kind of response from the culture. So we just need to remind ourselves of the gospel today. We need to remind ourselves not only of what Paul affirmed to the Romans, but how he modeled it himself in Festus' courtroom before King Agrippa. And we want to take strength from that. And we want to focus our attention this morning on, on being able to affirm what he affirmed to the Romans as we get up and go out and then go model it ourselves and enjoy the freedom of a deep confidence and joy in the gospel, a delight to proclaim it. So let's take this chapter in two parts. You can see them listed there in the bulletin. There's our outline. First of all, simply reviewing Paul's life. That's verses 1 through 23, and we can move through that quickly because a big part of it is his testimony again, the third time that that's appeared in the book of Acts, and we'll make a point of that as we move past it. So reviewing Paul's life and then appreciating Paul's witness. This is one of the sweetest just witnessing encounters, I think, that comes in the whole book of Acts. It's one of my favorites because of how Paul handled himself, because of who was present, because of the nature of the dialogue. It's just a sweet exchange and I think a great message and model to us with regard to what it looks like in a public setting when we're not ashamed of the gospel that has saved us. So, reviewing Paul's life, verses 1 to 23, as the curtain rises in today's passage, uh, we see a courtroom with proceedings ready to begin. If you remember the uh, dramatic, even, even pompous uh, entry of the king and his sister had already occurred as chapter 25 was coming to a conclusion. We covered that last Sunday. The governor had already uh, briefed them in the courtroom in um, back at the end of chapter 25, uh, and identified his desire for the outcome today. He needed something to report to the emperor when he sends Paul. So that's what he's hoping to find from today's hearing. So the first words we hear then as this chapter opens are the words of the king, granting Paul permission to speak for himself there in verse 1, and that's just what Paul did. He appropriately honored the king. We talked about that last week. And that's a, a standard opening sort of presentation in court. Um, and Paul is doing it again with, uh, with Agrippa here. Uh, he appropriately honored the king as, uh, as really the one who was most well-equipped as one of the authorities that he could have answered to. He was the one that was most well-equipped to understand and appreciate the issues that were at stake here. You can see Paul says that here in verses 2 and 3. That was the case because he was the king of Judea. He, he, he reigned over this region and had, his family had, for, for more than a century now. 
And even though his ancestors, the ancestors of the Herod family, appear to be Edomites, descendants from Esau that lived just south and a little west of, of Israel, they were brought into the Jewish faith by the Maccabean leader, John Hyrcanus, back in about 130 B.C., a long time before this. So Agrippa knew the ins and outs of all that was going to be played out before him. He may have even been a confessing Jew himself. And Paul drew on that as he spoke. Verse 4, My manner of life from my youth is known by all the Jews. They have for a long time, uh, have known for a long time that I, I lived as a, as a Pharisee. Verse 6, And I stand here on trial before you because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul is saying, I'm standing here because I'm a faithful Jew. I'm faithful to my people. I'm faithful to our God. The worst thing I've done, Paul said, is to believe that the hope of Israel, the promise God made to our fathers, is fulfilled in Jesus. There's my crime. That the promise that God made to our fathers has actually now been fulfilled in Jesus. Paul is going right to the heart of the matter. Giving even passing thought to these matters, we could recognize that the keeping of those promises that, that Paul is talking about here would require resurrection. It makes it a necessity. It, it makes eternal life a necessity also. If we go back and read our Old Testament, once we see how it plays out, once Jesus has identified himself, the gospel has been made known, and we start understanding the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, we recognize that in order for those promises to be kept, resurrection is a necessity, and so is eternal life. The promises themselves are eternal. The ones made to Abraham in Genesis 17, the one made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And they include eternal life, Psalm 16, Psalm 21, Psalm 103, and many other places that allude to eternal life that as you read through it on its own, you can miss it. But once the story gets to the stage that it was at when Paul was talking to Agrippa here, you can look back and see this has been there all along. These are the promises. This is what God was saying to our fathers. Jesus is the fulfillment of these. And he's the one that helps us make sense of all that has been told to us in the law and the prophets up until now. And that's why Paul asks so early in his presentation, here in verse 8, what I think is the key and hinge question in this whole proceeding. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That is such a great question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If he couldn't, would he truly be God? Is it really so hard to believe that a creator God who spoke the world into existence can bring a dead person back to life? Why is that hard for you guys to believe? Why is it hard to understand? I love that question. Because that starts moving us in the direction of our own confidence in the gospel. It's like, wait a minute, yeah. Jesus rose from the dead. 
Why do I struggle with that? That has happened once in history. It happened at the end of many promises and foretellings of it happening. It didn't happen in a corner, as we'll hear Paul say. How is it that that does not turn the corner and make me so delighted in the gospel that I can't help but talk about it whenever it comes up? In fact, I don't even wait for it to come up. I initiate the conversation because this is amazing, especially when we consider what's at stake because Jesus is risen from the dead. What we're entitled to as we embrace by faith the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Wow. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If he couldn't, would he truly be worthy of our worship and of our praise? And why? For what? Death is the greatest fear that human beings share. And God can't do anything about it? Why would we worship and praise him? It's a great question. So many tangents, so many applications and implications but we're going to move on through the text paul is reminding the king and the governor that if there is a god which they likely both believe he would actually be able to do godlike things that's what paul wants them to see the real irrationality here in this world is affirming belief in god Even calling out to God in times of need, as so many so often do, and yet somehow thinking that he can't really intervene. He can't really do anything about it. At the bottom line, at the core of the matter, God's hands are tied. He's he's incapable. He can't raise the dead. Well, then he's not a God. There's the point Paul's making. The real irrationality here isn't believing that God can raise the dead. It's affirming belief in a God and not thinking he can raise the dead. That he can't help when we call out to him in our times of need. That he can't do supernatural things. I think the line is blurring between uh, real human beings and superheroes. We think People actually do have supernatural powers. It's part of our discussion with one another. What power would you have? Well, we have a God who has them all, and yet we don't really believe that. That's really odd. Don't you think that's really odd? So did Paul, and he's talking to Agrippa and to Festus about that very subject. Because Paul knows that God can do these things. He's experienced them personally, Paul has. He was going hard after Christians in protection of Judaism when he was suddenly interrupted in the middle of the day with a light from heaven that he says was brighter than the sun, that he saw it and that those who were traveling with him saw it. Verse 13. This was more than 25 years ago at this point. In Paul's story, at this point in the spread of the gospel, Paul knows that Christ is risen because he's spoken to him. We know this story 
As I said, this is the third time it's been told in the book of Acts. It was back in chapter 9 with Luke's telling. And then it was part of Paul's own testimony in chapter 22. And now again here in chapter 26. This time it's a bit conflated, which means it's, it's sort of crunched together, compressed to include both his Damascus Road experience as well as his time in Damascus with that devout man Ananias. And it's put together as though he heard all of this on the road, but that's not because those details are important. It's because they've been told already, and Paul's getting them to the point that he wants them to hear. Paul was going to be sent to the Gentiles. That's why God interrupted him on his way to Damascus. That's why the bright light shone from heaven and why Jesus decided to have a conversation with Paul right there on the road. He had an assignment for him. He was going to be sent to the Gentiles, verse 17, into verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, to this light, Paul, brighter than the sun, brighter than the reflected snow. Sorry, Paul, but it is. This is a bright light. Turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Don't you love that? That's simple and clear and right to the heart. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Here's what he's talking about. The first two, the first one really is metaphorical. The second one is categorical. The third one is really intensely personal. So turn from darkness to light. Turn from the power of Satan to God. And here's how it happens. Because they receive forgiveness of sins. They turn from their sin and receive a place. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. This is the salvation of God coming to Jew and Gentile together and making one new man out of the two, as Paul explained to the Ephesians, probably working on that letter right now while we're talking here in this passage. And that's just what Paul has been pursuing ever since then. Is that proclamation, that mission that he received that day, that's just what he's been pursuing and therefore the Jews are now pursuing him like he had been pursuing Christians prior. Verse 21, he says, For this reason, for this reason, because of this message, they seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. But he's just testifying to nothing, nothing, he says, but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, said would happen. All he's doing is saying, here's what it was pointing to. It's come. It's arrived. Promise fulfillment. He's talking about nothing except what the prophets and Moses have said would happen And he's saying that it's been fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. His suffering on the cross and his being the first to rise from the dead, verse 23. Thus bringing salvation both to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. This story is simple. The story is clear. It's made certain by the supernatural work of Christ. This is the truth. And that's just all there is to it. And Paul has laid it out with clarity and with precision and apparently with pretty significant impact 
Because at this point is when Festus broke in. This was just too much for the Roman governor. The very next words move us into the next section of a, a, appreciating Paul's witness. When Festus, in verse 24, said with a loud voice, now believing himself to be the rational one in this conversation, Paul, you're out of your mind. What did it take for this restrained Festus to go there? To just blurt out in the middle of the court, Paul, you're crazy. Your great learning is driving you crazy. You wonder if, if it wasn't a little self-correct there. It's like, oh, what did I just say? Uh, this guy is, is a leading Pharisee. Everybody knows it. It's your great learning that's driven you out of your mind. But Paul, comes right back at him. And I, I would love to have heard Paul's response because I don't know whether it came with equal force to what it sounds like Festus's answer or Festus's expression was given or whether it was just sort of gentle and soft. And as I read different commentators on this, they kind of go back and forth between the two. But I'd love to have heard the tone of Paul's voice when he said this. He comes right back at him, fully denying the charge of madness. And he said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Not forgetting good manners. I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. You can understand what I'm saying. I'm not a raving lunatic. I'm talking about stuff that's happened. King knows it, and that's where he goes. He looks over to Agrippa to strengthen his argument. He says there in verse 26, For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. I, I, I can because we don't even have to agree on the facts. The facts are here. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. It couldn't have king there in Judea. Why? And there's the statement, for this has not been done in a corner. This wasn't some hidden secret plot. This happened in Jerusalem. This one who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem was crucified not five miles away in the big city, the capital city of Jerusalem. It was right there in the streets. It was at the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three times a year when the whole nation gathers in the city. This wasn't done in a corner. This all played out right there in Jerusalem. Jesus' body wasn't just missing from the tomb. He's, he was seen and heard in a number of places. This letter probably written five or six years earlier. 1 Corinthians 15, we just referred to it this morning. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, Paul wrote, most of whom are still alive. Go ask them. Though some have fallen asleep over that period of time. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, suggesting to us that there is that category that's beyond just the twelve. And then last of all, it's one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Festus. I've seen him. I've talked to him. You don't have to go anywhere else to find out that Jesus is alive. I am an eyewitness. And an ear witness. I can say that he's alive. 
Want to summarize Paul? Sure. Resurrection is hard to believe under normal circumstances. But when God himself is factored in, and when he's made promises that need to be fulfilled, I'm not sure why resurrection would seem so strange to you, Festus. I'm not sure why it would seem so strange to you, Agrippa. We're talking about God. Are you just playing with those words? Or do you actually believe in what you're saying? And when you believe, do you think that God can do God-like things? Because if he can't, let's give him a different name. That's not what Paul's saying. I just said that. That's the force of his argument, though. Now speaking fully to the king, verse 27 King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He knew Agrippa. But the king's pride or maybe his embarrassment won the moment here, I believe. He couldn't say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's sitting here in a public courtroom with a Roman governor dressed up in his Sunday best, remember? This isn't the time or place to give in to this. I think we've now heard him sort of check himself. Paul, paraphrasing, you think you can persuade me to repentance and faith in so short a time? Prideful statement. Doesn't understand the heart of the issues. But I still love Paul's answer because he wasn't thrown off stride by it. Just a simple, straightforward question, and he answered it simply and straightforwardly. However long it takes, however long it takes, Paul said, I really do wish that everyone here today might experience what I've experienced, might know what I know, might, might, might experience what I've experienced, except for the chains. This is truth, you guys. That's what he's saying to the governor and the king. And that's when the session ended. Festus and Agrippa looked at each other and they, they agreed that if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could have been released. But Paul was headed to Rome in any case. So that was fine from the story's perspective, from God's perspective. But for us, there are a couple more matters to note and to tie off before we leave Festus's courtroom here in appreciating the witness that Paul gave. Matters that have to do with Paul's being completely unashamed by the gospel and what we see here and what we learn here from how he proclaimed the gospel in this setting. So we want to ask a question. What's the key factor? What is the key factor that had him so boldly persuaded that he's willing to stand toe-to-toe with kings and governors in defense of it, even when he was on trial for his life? That's a good question, you think? What is it? The key factor that had him so boldly persuaded that he's willing to do that, go toe-to-toe with kings and governors, even when he's in their courtroom on trial for his life? Well, 
We've seen it from the very start of Luke's history, haven't we? We see it here in this text today, but we've seen it all the way through the book of Acts. The answer is very simply the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. Way back in chapter 1, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection in order to be considered one of the twelve. That was a point made in the opening chapter. In chapter 2, it stood at the heart of Peter's sermon in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He even quoted from Psalm 16 and said that David, the king, the king in Israel, prophetically foresaw the resurrection of Jesus and spoke of it in Psalm 16. The resurrection is what annoyed the Sadducees about the apostles' teaching in chapter 4, verse 2. And it disturbed all the leaders by, chapter five, by verses 5 through 12 in that same chapter when Peter and John were answering about the lame man that they had healed, remember? Still later, in that same chapter, the resurrection was a summary of the whole gospel message. Chapter 4, verse 33. It was alluded to by Stephen near the end of his speech and the end of his life. And soon after comes the first telling of Paul's conversion where the resurrected Jesus speaks to him. Chapter 9, verse 5. Then the resurrection was the climax of his sermons in, in Antioch, chapter 13, and in the marketplace and on Mars Hill in Athens in chapter 17. Now it comes up three more times in this closing panel as he moves through his trials. Chapter 23, chapter 24, and then here in 26. He even says that the hope of the resurrection is the reason why he's on trial. He said that clearly back in chapter 23. He said it in a little more veiled fashion, a little more nuanced fashion right here in verse 26 or in chapter 26. Now it stands at the heart of this speech that he's given that we're studying today. It stands there as the key question the pivotal question in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And that's the very good question, not just for the courtroom, but it's still a good question for us today. Why would we ever think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Answer, we really wouldn't. We might even say that we really wouldn't because He's already done it. He's already raised the dead. He's raised Jesus, and we're confident of that. Really? Are we? That's the question that needs to sit in our hearts today. Are we really convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead? Not like we doubted his historical fact. We really do believe that God brought that about, but I don't think we brought those two thoughts together. Our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and our being unashamed by his gospel. Just think about it. Our confidence in the reliability of the gospel is anchored to the resurrection, to the fact that Jesus arose. That's what confirms the reliability of, of all the amazing, outlandish statements that he made during his earthly ministry. I and the Father are one? Really? No one comes to Him except through me? Wow. 
It's the resurrection of Jesus that affirms all of that, confirms it. Resurrection is what infuses biblical meaning into all the miracles that Jesus performed. Those miracles were invasions of the new heavens and new earth into this present fallen world. Inbreakings of resurrection. Inbreakings of resurrection life and health into our sin-laden disease and death that we have in this life. He opens our eyes so that we may turn from darkness to light. And that's the turn from darkness to light. Seeing what was accomplished in those miracles. From the power of Satan to God that we might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. God raises us from death unto life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, that we might experience the abundant joy that comes from leaving sin and emptiness behind in favor of cleansing and fullness. My friends, this is the gospel that Paul preached. And it's the gospel that we believe. This is the promise of the Old Testament. It's precisely what Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. The Messiah must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, verse 23... He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's through the resurrection that we're transferred from darkness to light. And this is what seemed crazy to Festus in his courtroom that day. The whole world saved by a Jewish Messiah. Messiah who rose from the dead as a promise that all who are made holy by faith in Him, verse 18, will likewise rise from the dead and live with Him forever. That seemed crazy to Festus. Except that that's exactly what happened. The fact that it sounded crazy to Festus and maybe a bit embarrassing to Agrippa in that setting didn't dampen Paul's zeal in the slightest. Not in the slightest. It didn't tempt him to suddenly be ashamed of the gospel, thing. uh-oh, these guys aren't buying it. Because what did that matter? That didn't change a thing. He had seen the resurrected Jesus. He'd spoken with him. And he knew this is what the Scriptures had said all along must happen. Now it had happened. And there was just no way to be quiet about that or timid or uneasy or ashamed. It was the truth. And it was precisely what confirmed that no other religion can stand alongside this one. Still to this day. Jesus is risen. Amen? And He's just the first. Verse 23. 
He's just the first. All who believe in him will likewise be raised. And it's going to be your embarrassment, Agrippa. It's going to be your, your perception of, of, of irrationality, Festus, that keeps you from buying into that and saying, resurrection life, eternal life, already seen through the first fruits of the dead, Jesus himself, right there in Jerusalem, I'm in. I'm in. When? Where has that ever happened? Answer. Nowhere. He's the first. That happened in real space, in real time. And nothing like it had ever happened before, nor has anything like it ever happened since. This is the heart of the story. This is Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Why aren't you running to it? Flee to the Savior who has made himself known through the fulfillment of the promises made in God's most holy word and proven through the life and ministry of Jesus both during the days that he was here on earth doing that ministry himself and since then as he called Paul in a really explicit and dramatic way, but as he has called so many others since then through the work of his spirit, through the ministry of his word, into the saving faith that Paul is defending in that setting. Oh, my friends, how could we ever be ashamed of that gospel? That is at home everywhere. Everybody you know needs to know about this. I'm not saying go tell them now this afternoon before you sleep. But with refreshed and renewed passion for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of a resurrected Savior, let us recognize that we are not the irrational ones. When you see that happen and turn away from it because the time's not right, the setting's not right, my friends might think I'm weird. Wow. Is that crazy? Amen? That heaping criticism on anybody. Just picking up on Festus's accusation. Paul wasn't crazy. Festus was crazy. May we be on the side of the angels, on the side of the Apostle Paul, on the side of the risen Lord Jesus Christ for the praise of his glory. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, and then let's remember the body and blood of the Lord that has purchased this salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul's testimony in this setting today, looked at from Acts 26. And Lord God, I pray that each and every one of us might reassess where we stand with regard to these things. Not as though any of us would have come here this morning and said, yeah, I'm not really sure Jesus rose from the dead.
But with our actions, we may be saying precisely that. Even though I know Jesus rose from the dead, I'm not really persuaded to the point where I'm unashamed in the midst of those who can't see it. Well, Father, deliver us from that. Not as something that we are pursuing or holding on to out of desire not to believe, but just one more manifestation of the weakness of the flesh within us that doesn't understand the implications of what you have done. I pray, Lord God, that by your grace and for your glory, the full impact of the resurrection of Jesus on our lives as believers here, now, today, would descend upon us as a ministry of your Spirit even while we remember his body and blood this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.